Our series is in the book of Galatians. It's faith expressing itself or working through love. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Galatians 6, I'll put it on the board, but um, nothing, nothing wrong with looking at your copy of the scriptures and making notes and highlights. Let me read our text today. And just so you know, we're going to be in this section of scripture for a couple weeks. It's a very important section of scripture. Paul says, but I say, what's the context? Remember last week, Paul says, you've been free. Christ has given you freedom from the law, from its burden, from its oversight, from its curse, its condemnation. You've been freed, but don't use that freedom as an occasion for your flesh. And so there's this kind of underlying question. If we tell people they they have freedom through Christ, they are going to live disobedient lives under the guise of grace. And Paul says, no, that's it's not going to happen. It may happen, but not, not for long term. So this is how he counters it. Um, he says, use your freedom as, as an opportunity to love your neighbor, which is actually does fulfill the very law that you're worried everyone's not going to obey. Um, and this is, this is what he tells them to do. But I say, here it is, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I mean, whenever people think of church, they usually think of religion. Many people have been burned by religion. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a very, very strict tradition. I could say I've been burned by the church, by religion. Religion says we grow in holiness as we strive to obey the law of God. Hear that. We We grow in holiness as we strive to obey the law of God. Religion creates a culture of obedient law keeping. It creates a culture of traditions that put up man made boundaries five feet away from the rules of God to keep us safe from ever breaking the rules of God that we have exalted or that we have chosen out of all of the rules of God. Religion creates a a, a culture of tradition, which includes a culture of shame for failing to keep the law of God. It creates a culture of guilt. If you were to actually confess the thoughts that you had this week, religion would call you to confession and repentance, and it would shame you. It would not be an accepted thing for someone in our congregation to stand and confess their sin under the guise of religion, under the rubric of religion. The people who are obedient hold power over the disobedient. They're the ones elected to office, those who have had some greater measure of spiritual, spiritual accomplishment, what we would call a mature Christian. 
They hold power over the disobedient, over the weak. The spiritual over the unspiritual. Leaders are chosen not because of their humility, not because of their confession and repentance, but because of their spiritual accomplishments and the cycle of protecting the culture of religion continues. For many who grow up in this culture, it's a safety net. It feels safe. It's known. We grew up in a culture, my wife and I did, that people would leave it and then come back five years later to say, oh, it's just so ungodly out there. I wanted to come back home where it's safe, where it's where people love Jesus. Can you imagine if the missionaries did that? Yeah, wouldn't work. Um, but this culture, this Christian community can be this safety net. It's known. It's separated from evil, they think. Um, it controls our flesh. It, uh, it sets boundaries for us and keeps us contained so that we're not inclined. The culture of guilt and shame keeps us from doing things that would shame us in that culture. And so those things that, that we shame publicly are resisted while all the other elements of the flesh are ignored. Um, it's the, uh, well, I won't go there, but you get the point. Um, Peace faking happens in a culture of religion. Peace faking happens in this setting. Self-righteousness rules in this setting. Pharisaism rules in this setting. I think what Paul is telling us is what the gospel says. I think the gospel says something radically different. The gospel says we grow in holiness as we lean into the gospel of grace ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. We grow in holy. We actually grow in obedience to the Lord. We actually grow in holy living as we lean into the gospel of grace. What God has done for us through Jesus Christ, through no part of our own, but through his unmerited favor, his intervention into our lives to rescue us, the new life of regeneration that he's given us, the adoption into his family as we move into that the holy spirit as he ministers that grace to us actually transforms us as we read in our confession of faith into the very likeness of god and this is god's intent to transform us or conform us into the image of christ his obedient son but it's not through our effort it's not through our obedience that we are transformed. It is not through our New Year's resolutions that this year we're going to obey. We're going to be alcohol-free in 2023. That's the next time it would rhyme. Um, you know, we're going to be uh, lust-free. You know, we're, we're, going to, we're going to do it this year, man. Um, that is not how we grow in grace. That is just the flesh trying to be good law keepers, and it doesn't work. The gospel says that we grow in holiness. We actually experience that transformation as we lean into the gospel of grace. And, the, and this is ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. So Paul, look how, look how he says it. He says, but I say, in, in contradiction to the religion of the Judaizers who would get you to ad, adopt the law 
and all its rubrics in, in opposition to those who would say, well, the law doesn't matter. I'm going to go live how I want. Um, because of grace, he says, there's, a, there's an answer. If, if those are the three ways to live, two of them build, are built around the law. The legalist says, well, as long as I keep the law, I'm right with God. The, the antinomian, the licentious person says, well, I'm under grace, and so the law doesn't matter. Don't talk to me about law. What's still on their mind? It's like the atheist saying there is no God. Well, if there's no God, then why does he bother you so much? <laughs> why do you have to disprove him so much? Why is he always on your mind that you have to say, no, that's, that's that God thing. No, no God. Um, the antinomian, the, the person who lives under the rubric of grace as though it means I can do whatever I want, is still fighting the law. It's, still, it, it's like me fighting my tradition. It's like some, at some point you want to get over that. At some point you want to move on. At some point um, when you're talking to someone and, and their parents wounded them deeply as children, um, you, know, you, you, have, you have two children. You have one that's the really good law-keeping child, the really you know, typically the firstborn, very obedient, very you know, very committed to the parents' rules, and then you have the secondborn. If you're a secondborn, you know who you are, okay? But the secondborn child is like, I want to get as far away from my parents as I can, you know? Um, I want to be the free thinker. I want to be the free spirit. Um, and then you talk to them in adult life, and this one, you know, the, the firstborn talks about how they kept their parents' rules and, and, and la, la, la. And, and the, the secondborn says, my parents did me harm. I, I'm, I'm pushing them away. Both kids' lives are still determined by the parents. Both kids' identities are still, are still created by the parent. And, and this is what happens with the law of God. You're either going to be the great law keeper, which you're not, and God doesn't receive, and you're going to define your life and your identity by how obedient you're all, you are, or you're going to define your life by how free you are as compared to your older brother. And either way, you're still bound by the law. The law still defines you, whether how close you are to it or how far away you are from it. And Paul would say, there's, there's a better way. There's life in the Spirit of God. There's life through the Spirit and with the Spirit. And so life by the Spirit is life with the Spirit. This is this new creation that we are. Um, the faith that we have in God is a result of what the Holy Spirit has done for us. He's regenerated us, given us new life, and that life is now the dominant uh, force. I hate to use the word force. It's the dominant movement in our life. This is why Paul can say in, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul sees this transformational work of the Holy Spirit as foundational to a life of growing in holiness. So that it's not me that's, that's changing me, it's the work of Christ being lived out in my life. It's the power of Christ, his resurrection, and his spirit that is actually transforming me. Christ's spirit alive in me, having made me a new creation, actually begins the process of killing my flesh. And by flesh, Paul means this, this latent sin nature that's in me, 
these latent desires that while, while dead, while no longer able to control me, they're still there. They still uh, raise their head. They're like whack-a-mole. You hit this one and this one pops up. You can't get rid of it. You will never get rid of it, but you can see its power diminished. You can experience actual change and turning from sin. This is why Paul says something very similar in Romans 8. If through the Spirit you kill, you put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is what he's talking about here. There's this third way of life. And it's life with the person who gave you life, the Spirit. And the way John the Apostle says it is the life that you live is now going to be consistent with the person who gave you that life, with the life that gave you life. And so our lives were made new by the Holy Spirit of God, and so we should expect that the Holy Spirit will, will now bear holiness in our lives. That's the nature of the life that we have. But notice what Paul says. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit. He, there is, a, there is a, uh, a way that we're to participate in this in this transformation. And it's through drawing near to, staying close to the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's to live life in, through, by, and with the Holy Spirit uh, every day. Um, that means, though, that there's no magic pill for you to take. If you have a sin in your life that no one knows about, or maybe your, your spouse knows about, or your dearest friends, and they tell you, man, why don't you just walk the aisle and dedicate your life to God again and get the victory? Why don't you just come and get the victory? There's no, there's no magic pill. There's no formula. There's nothing you can do to, to zap and change it. It's a walk. It's a journey. It's a path. It's time with. It's life lived with the person of the Holy Spirit. And as he ministers the grace of God to you, you less and less give in to your desires. We don't like that, right? I mean, we're Americans. We, I think of Jim Gaffigan who says he likes to go to McDonald's and he gets so used to ordering his food and it coming out immediately that when he goes to an actual restaurant... They say, what do you want? He says, I want a hamburger. Where is it? Because that, that's who we are. We're this instant culture. God, I, I want to confess my sin, and I want, I want to see that changed in my life. When's it going to happen? And God says, well, it doesn't work that way. You need to walk. You need to walk. Because it's, it, the sin is, is not the thing I'm after. God is not after your behavioral transformation because behavior has at its root something that God is after. So God doesn't want to just solve your problem, take away your drinking problem, take away your lust problem, take away your spending problem, take away... He, he's not going to do that. Now, I've seen him do that. But his normal course of action is to say, all right, you're mine, you're forgiven, you're loved... Nothing's going to change that. I know you're not obedient. Jesus is. You're safe. Now, let's walk. Now, let's, let's do life together because I'm going to show you some things that are pretty yucky. But that's okay. Remember, they're forgiven. So let's walk. Let's talk. 
Let's engage. Let's see where this leads. I've often talked to people that I feel like in my own life, and I think I could demonstrate biblically, that repentance is something I do verbally, but it's something the Holy Spirit does internally. So that I remember as I started to process the fact that I'm a very, I, I, can, I, I can be a very angry person, and I wouldn't have expressed it in, in those terms. I would have said I'm just frustrated. But my family would say, no, Dad, that's not frustration. That is not frustration. My youngest son the other day said, Dad, are you angry? I'm trying to read you, which is great. What a mature thing to say, to ask your dad, right? For a 12-year-old to ask your that's some emotional intelligence I don't have, okay? But he asked me, Dad, I, I don't understand. Are you angry? And I said, no, I'm not angry. And so I, I realized whatever I'm doing is communicating anger. Um, so it was, it, was, it was nice to work through that, but he should have seen, he should have experienced my older kids experienced. Because <laughs> they had actually had to be on the front end of dad being sanctified. And so I started to process the fact that there's a lot more anger going on in my heart and my life. And so I would confess it. God, I'm, you know, I see it. I see it, God. I see it. Finally, you have opened my eyes to my anger. I see it. I don't know what's going on. So rescue me from it. And you almost, looking back, it's like God said, Tim, I, I wish I could do that for you, but I got more to show you. And so then I started to see how my anger was affecting my ministry, the people I served. And it started to break my heart even more. God, wow, man, you've seen the anger of my life. This is your people. Aren't you concerned about this? And God said, yeah, I am. Glad you see it now, Tim. But it's worse than that. And so I'm crying out to God. I'm repenting. I'm saying, God, I don't want this in my life. God, I want you to change me. And God, God is saying, Tim, I am. But we've got to go a little deeper. We've got to go into this further. And then I started to see how my anger was affecting my wife, who I love. I mean, I cherish this woman. 24 years tomorrow. 24 long years. And I don't say long in, oh my word, this has been so long. I mean gloriously long years. I have cherished every long year of it. And I wish they would just slow down. But I started to see how my anger affected Debbie. How she would withdraw. And then I found out some of her own struggles and how she was struggling personally, and I realized my anger was just making this worse. But the one that killed me was when I stared in the eyes of my oldest and saw how my anger affected him emotionally and how it affects him still today. You've never seen a man beg God to take away his anger. But I started to find out, God started to show me what was motivating it. The fear that was at the root of it. And I didn't just start asking God to take away my anger. I started asking God to take away the fear. I started asking God to take away the pride that was trying to control life so that Tim could be safe. And when that started to happen, the anger started to go away. You see, that path is God leading me to repentance, leading me to actually turn away from the sin and embrace Christ, embrace 
the grace that he has for me. Embrace the promises of his acceptance of me, which was one of my deepest fears, that God really wasn't accepting me. And in that fear, anger came out. And God actually started to change my heart. Now, he isn't done on that issue either, (laughs) but on a lot of other issues. But guys, this is how God works. It's a walk. And so God leads you to a point and you say, oh God, I don't want this in my life. I want to turn. And God says, okay, but we got to go deeper. And he leads you down the path a little bit longer and you say, oh man, this is nasty. What's behind this? Why, Why can't I see change here? And he says, well, I'll show you. But before we look, Remember, I love you. It's okay. I've forgiven you. My grace is yours. You are my child. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now look. It was, oh, I had no idea that was in my heart. And then there is this thing that happens that is not my doing. I actually turn. I actually eschew the old King James, you say. I actually reject that way of thinking, that desire, that fear, that deep value that I've been cherishing. And anger dissipates. Where did it go? I don't know. I don't care. I'm just thankful that in our family life that that my kids would say, yeah, dad gets frustrated, but all I got to do is say, hey, dad, are you frustrated? And he's like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm I'm good. (laughs) I I know what's going on. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Because I tell you, I think my my 12-year-old is going to have a very different experience than my 19-year-old did. This is the work of the Spirit. It's a walk. It's a process. Paul says, if we're led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he say, if you're led of the Spirit, you're not under the flesh? It's because the law and the flesh go together. The flesh, these evil desires that we have that are deep, those are the things that are creating behavior, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. The, the, the works of the flesh are evident. Why? Because these desires produce evidence all the time. But it's these desires that God wants to get at, and what the law does is it comes and it condemns behavior. And it just keeps hitting us and hitting us and hitting us. And, and so Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, you're not under the rubric, the condemnation, the expectation of the law. Not that the law is a bad thing. Paul says the law is a beautiful thing. But the law actually, he says in Romans 7, inflames my flesh. The law told me not to do it, and something within inside said, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. Paul's not saying we have no relationship with the law, but that it has no condemning power over us. It has no power to give us standing with God. It's still beautiful. It's still spiritual. It's still good. It is still righteous. It is still from God. I look at it and I say, wow, you want this in me. You want me. I mean, I love the way Paul says it in Ephesians 5. He says, let there be no... uh, a lot, you know, uh, immorality among you, no fornication. Let it not even be named among you. There's not even a hint of it anywhere. And I look at that and I think, do you know me? I mean, you expect that of me, but you must not know me and the culture I live in. 
It's impossible to look at Fox News without having my, my lust stirred up or CNN or any of the channels. Do you know me? And he says, yeah, I do. But that's what I want to do in your life. That's where I want to get you, Tim. Wow, well, it's going to take a work of grace to get me there. He says, I know <laughs> more than you do. And he starts to walk with me. And he starts to use the law to expose my sin, to condemn my sin, to, to make me say, God, you want this from me, but I can't do it. And he says, I know. <laughs> That's what we need you to see. And he starts to lead me in paths of righteousness for his namesake as I walk with him. The Spirit does not ignore the law of God. The person walking in the Spirit does not ignore the law of God. But they admit their powerlessness to keep the slightest command. They cry out for the Father to lead them in paths of righteousness. They cry out for the Spirit to transform their broken hearts, their sinful, rebellious hearts, as they walk with the Spirit. Secure in our standing with God, we begin to depend on God for the grace to say no to our flesh, to live obediently before the Lord. Let's take the example of drinking. Drinking is one of those things that, that the, uh, the religious culture would, would frame and say that's a shameful thing if you're caught drunk. And by the way, God, right, God says don't be drunk with wine. He tells us to never be intoxicated. And so it's one of those things that in the Christian community, if it happens, you're going to be like, oh, I'm ready for the guilt and shame. They're going to hit me with it. Right? But the gospel doesn't speak that way. So hopefully our church wouldn't respond that way, right? Hopefully we would say, wow, I'm, I'm sorry you're struggling with that. What, you know, let, let's walk together down this path and see what the Holy Spirit would reveal how he would free you. And so the Holy Spirit, as you start to cry out, Father, I'm drinking too much. I'm turning to wine to solve or alcohol, to, to numb pain. What, what's going on? I want to stop. And he would take you down that path and begin to reveal more and more how it's affecting you, how it's affecting your family. More and more, he would show you why you're doing it, the motives behind it, what you think it will provide for you, and what you're not willing to deal with internally that's causing you to turn to that. And he would supplant the power of that substance with the person and the work of Jesus in your life. He would change your desire so that you find pleasure and joy and hope in Christ and you don't have to numb that. That's the transformation that God wants to accomplish in our lives. I'm going to stop there today. I, I knew I would. I created this point for that reason. But consider the walk with the Spirit. Folks, God could change you. Let me, let me go to my first application. How do you respond to sin in your life? Let's ask that question. How do you respond to sin in your life? If you run and hide, you're not living in the gospel. If you make excuses, you're not living in the gospel. If you are blaming others or minimizing your sin, you're not living in the gospel. Now, I have prayed, <laughs> right? I have the, the, the sniper in the background, the Holy Spirit. I have prayed that he is sniping you right now, 
that he is calling out the things that he is after in your life. Guys, it's not the behavior he's after. Oh, he wants the behavior change, but that's secondary. He's after the root. He's after the things that are inside you. What's coming out of your heart are these desires. He's after that. How do you respond when he exposes that? I would remind you that grace is better than you imagined. That God has something gloriously in mind for you. That he loves you. He's accepted you. In Christ, he has forgiven you. And he calls to you to walk with him. And it's safe. It's safe to do so. And it's transforming. The very thing you want for your life, God is able to do. Let's walk with him. Father, as we continue in this series, as we continue in this text, would you open our hearts and minds to walking with you, to experiencing the transforming power of your spirit, not through our hard work, but through the power of your spirit, through the life of Christ, the new creation that we are in Christ. Father, we, as your children, want to live holy lives. We want to be obedient. But wow, it's just so beyond our ability. Would you encourage us in the presence of your Spirit today? Would you assure us, even in these moments, for the presence of your Spirit, that you can do it, that you want to do it, and that if we'll walk with you, we'll see progress for the glory of Christ. Amen.